it's not a deliverance for humanity, but it is an opportunity for for us to no longer blindly and helplessly walk down the road that we've been going down. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth and what a good time to be doing that. I'm your host, Amber Magnolia Hill. Today, I am sharing my interview with Charles Eisenstein. Charles and I spoke a few months ago as well. That was episode 60, The Boundaries of the Unthinkable Are Wavering, which is very much what's happening right now, right? So this is going to be probably the shortest intro I've ever done because I just want to get right into it. The only thing I have to tell you is that I've recorded a special outro for this episode. I read, first of all, a post that Stephen Herod Buner, previous podcast guest, um, put up on Facebook a week or so ago. It's his response to the apparently barrage of emails he's getting, which I can only imagine since he's been writing about viruses and viral pandemic possibilities for years. Um, His response to people telling him that the virus has been created by humans, bioengineered, it goes deep into the larger ecological matrix of life, which is also something that Charles and I speak about. And then I read a second post um, written by someone I don't know and I've never met. Someone just texted this to me. Her name is Katie Lamont and just beautiful words about the solution, like actually the one solution, one weird trick, one solution to everything that's going on right now. But really, like there is one underlying solution that I'm coming back to again and again and that many of us are being pointed towards as well and that comes up in this conversation with Charles and then finally I tell you about another podcast episode from another podcast that I have found to be the most helpful for me during this time so you can stick around after the interview if you would like to hear those wise words and be pointed in the direction of Another really just like deep diving, hard hitting, but heart nourishing podcast episode all about what's happening right now with coronavirus and all the societal impacts and ramifications. So there we go. Without further ado, let's listen to this interview with Charles Eisenstein. Hey, hi, Charles. Welcome back to Medicine Stories. I'm happy to see you again. Happy to be um, back. Good, thank you. I'm. Um, I I was stalking your social media and your website ever since the beginning of the whole coronavirus thing and the quarantine, especially waiting. You know, and you were quiet. And I was like, oh, he's working on something. He's working mm-hmm. on something big. And I was really happy when when you were and when you when you published your essay, the coronation. So we'll be talking about that today. Um, but I just want to start off by asking, like, how are you? How's your community? How's your town? And how has your life been changed in the last month? I mean, a lot of my life when I'm home, you know, and not traveling and speaking, a lot of my life is already online. So, I mean, what's changed is Carrie can't go to school, our seven-year-old son. 
Um, and it's really hard. Like it's totally unnatural for a kid to have zero social interaction. And in this day and age, school is pretty much, you know, you don't have kids running around outside playing anymore, uh, which is, uh, you know, a whole topic in and of itself that we could talk about. But um, so that's that's been kind of hard. And my wife, Stella, can't see patients anymore. You know, she's an acupuncturist and healer. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm not like um, super social anyway. Um, so like directly, my life hasn't been impacted except for the fact that I wrote that essay you were talking about. And now everybody wants me to be on podcasts. <laughs> so, but you know, that's not, I mean, that's kind of like my job is still working, you know, unlike some other people in my life, um, like my ex-wife and her husband, like he can't go to work, you know, he's not getting paid. Like, so in my sphere, it's affecting people, but my own day-to-day -day life has not been changed that much, actually. Yeah. yeah. Same here. We're homebodies. We work from home and sensitive introvert who doesn't like leaving the house much anyway. But of course, yeah, like you, the people in my life are being deeply affected and, and it's scary. And there's, I feel like most of the fear and the anxiety that I feel is more from the collective than from my own life. So let's start at the end of your essay. And why why did you name it The Coronation? Well, it's the idea that, that this whole affair, among other things, is also a kind of an initiation. And that it's, prov it's providing us an explicit choice of, of something that has been unconscious for a long time, which is basically basically the direction of our society and our own lives in it, where we've for a long time been kind of trapped in the the rut or on the road that civilization has been traveling on. And now with this interruption in normality, we have where it's like a pause or a reset and we could continue on the direction that we've been going on which includes things like the migration of life online, the, I mean, social distancing in one form or another has been happening for a while. Uh, everything that's happening today is kind of an, ex an extreme or an intensification of trends that are of longstanding. So we're, but we're being shown it in stark relief. Do we want to continue on that path or do we want to go on a different path of, solidarity and mutual care and what about the homeless and what about the working class and what about the prisoners and and you know is this is normal even anything we want to go back to like we could go on a different path and the coronation is is referring to if we step into this initiation into a different kind of society we are reorienting toward to well for one thing um claiming choice, i.e. sovereignty, where we had not been in sovereignty before, helplessly going on this path. And secondly, the nature of this choice that's available to us is a choice toward uh, service of the collective, service of life on earth, which is what the true sovereign serves. This true sovereign 
is not in it for himself to dominate and overlord over everybody, but it is, that's why he kneels to receive the crown, kneels to a non-political authority. You know, traditionally it's a, a priest who crowns the king or maybe a wizard. So I'm seeing this as it's not a deliverance for humanity, but it is an opportunity for for us to no longer blindly and helplessly walk down the road that we've been going down. That's, yeah. A, a coronation is like a rite of passage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's to step into kingship, queenship, sovereignty. Yeah, a crown. And yeah. the, cor- the, the coronavirus, I mean, that word, you know, is it's the same word. It's a, um, a crown, I guess it's because of the the uh, shape of the virus or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure why it's called coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But it is like one of these kind of poetic suggestions about what this crisis might actually be. So let's start from a place of not knowing. So I keep, I mean, I'm sure, same with you, just seeing so many opinions online and, you know, people telling us what's happening and how it is and what's going on. And I keep coming back to a place of, but we don't know for sure. And I don't know if we ever will know for sure in this, in this age. I'm just, I'm going to read a sentence from the essay. Uh, I don't really know what is happening. I don't see how anyone can amidst the seething farrago, which was a new word to me, of news, fake news, rumors, suppressed information, conspiracy theories, propaganda, and politicized narratives that fill the internet. Can, can Hold we just, on a second. I just yeah. found a nasty little tick crawling. Oh, no. So I'm going to squash that little guy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of compassion and solidarity, bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just okay. There we are. Sorry about that. So yeah, I was no. distracted there. <laughs> yes, as you should have been. Um, there's um, a, okay, another so, another pathogen, right? That. Um, yeah, I mean, this is you know ecosystem disruption, people, this has been, and this has been yeah tremendous disruption. Like you can't go outside anymore. Yeah. Um. And 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 it, it is yeah. It's the 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 um Lyme bacteria. Mm-hmm. is is having effects way beyond the direct effects on health. It's part of, actually, I think it's part of the same initiation, you know, mm-hmm. because it asks us actually to go deeper than, you know, here's another enemy to fight. So anyway, to go back to the quote you were, you, you, you recited. Um, yeah, I mean, I really do not know what's going on. Sometimes I read some of the theories that, you know, people call conspiracy theories. And I'm like, wow, there's something here. And there's something that doesn't add up. And then, you know, I'll, uh, but then like, I don't think that the epidemic is fake. You know, I mean, people are definitely getting sick in ways that weren't, they weren't before. Something's happening, I think. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm pretty sure that, that, that it's not nothing. Is it as big and scary as we've been told? I don't know. Because if if it isn't as big and scary as we've been told, we wouldn't know that because of the way that the media operates and the way that the medical 
and healthcare establishment is trained to see threats. Um, and the traumatic legacy of infectious disease um, in humanity. Um, so there's, there's, I really don't know what's going on. And that's what's brought me to wanting to, um, to respond in a way that makes sense no matter which narrative is true. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just don't know. I mean, I think what's going to happen after whatever period of time, it's the, the, the uh, most alarming predictions will not have come true. And some people will say that's because our, our quarantines and controls worked. And other people are going to say that's because it was never so bad to begin with. And so this question of who was right after all may never get resolved. So, and this is not just, you know, in, uh, along this issue, the, the same dynamic of, of um, an official narrative and dissident opinions and, and the inability of both sides even to agree on what a basic fact is, um, what's, what's a reliable source of facts from which we can argue, like people don't even agree on that in politics uh, around climate change, uh, around 9-11, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many events that, that it's almost like reality is bifurcating into two storylines. If not more. And this is something yeah. I think about all the time is getting us into like bigger philosophical question, but it, it's like we used to know or or did we? Um, a couple years ago, I read a book called The Great Influenza about the great influenza pandemic of 1918, because I've always been really interested in viral pandemics. And, you know, the author of that book thinks he knows. And reading that book, I think I know what happened during that. And I, collectively, I think there was a long period of time where humans did think that we understood and we had facts and we could make sense of things. And that just feels gone to us now. Right? Yeah. What? What are like? Did we actually used to know things? <laughs> has re has the fabric of reality actually changed, or has our understanding of things changed? That's another thing that we don't know. But it does bring <laughs> up it does bring up the, a, a deeper philosophical question that you know what is the relationship between perception and reality, or between um, belief and reality. The, uh, traditionally, it was that there's reality out there and we form beliefs about reality. Now, we're starting to entertain the idea that our beliefs affect reality in some way. And there's the kind of whatever law of attraction, new age belief that beliefs create reality. I think that the truth cannot be that simple because it's also obviously true that reality creates beliefs. So what I can say is that there's an intimate relationship between inner and outer that isn't just one way and that we are at the doorstep of a tremendous mystery and that it's not just a philosophical problem. Because when we, when, when we realize that <clears throat> the story we tell about the world changes the world, 
then we have to ask what story do we want to tell or what story do we want to step into that maybe is already there. It's not that we make up stories or make up what reality is. But it opens up a whole a whole universe of of questions. Um, I mean, we could, you know, go into all kinds of details about that. Like what, what is, what does science become when we admit the possibility that the intention behind an experiment influences the result of the experiment rather than the scientific methods postulate that there's an external reality that we are querying through the experimental method. Like maybe if you even perform an experiment, it changes the reality that you're experimenting upon. And how does it change it? I mean, it's not like you always get the result that you were anticipating. People get surprising results sometimes. So it can't be that simple. But what is it? <laughs> yeah, you know, this is this is just a little one little facet of the mystery that we're that's in front of us. And it seems to be coming up so acutely now as I mean, it's right in our face, you know, like, do you do social distancing or not? If you believe the official narrative, then yeah, not only would you, would you be risking yourself, but you're going to be risking other people's lives too. And if you reject that, the official narrative, and, and you don't do social distancing, then, you know, if, 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 and if the official narrative is not true, and I mean, I'm not going to go into all of the alternatives to it. Um, but you know, here, like one of them would be like, here you are complying with a program of totalitarian control that has created or taken advantage of a virus that isn't actually that dangerous so that everybody willingly goes along with their own, with their own oppression. Like there's a whole narrative there too. And I'm just looking at all these. And like you were saying, like reading this guy, he knows you know, I'm just, as I sample the different narratives and what state of being it puts me into, I just get less and less sure. Like, does this narrative appeal to me because it's more coherent and rational? Or is it because it resonates with a part of myself that, that you know, seeks comfort or seeks security or seeks, seeks stability and I'm really in the in the um in a really agnostic place right now. Yeah. Um, let's touch more on this impulse toward control and on various conspiracy theories floating around about that. What I always come back to when I am reading different conspiracy theories is there's there's some truth in them. But is the truth that a bunch of, you know, slimy old white dudes got in a room together and decided this is how this is going to play out? Or is it the, as you call it, the tilt of civilization been going a certain way for so long that this is sort of the inevitable end product of that? And then the people in power see they're in and see how they can use that for what's going on. You write about this really beautifully in the essay. So yeah, just tell us about civilization's ongoing impulse toward tighter control and ever more restrictions and the name of keeping us all safe and how this pandemic falls into that greater narrative. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I tend to be skeptical of conspiracy theories. Um, for as Bertrand Russell, I think it was said, they don't leave enough room for ordinary human folly. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, they posit like this, this cabal that are internally highly disciplined. Like they, they must get along with each other really well and cooperate right. really well yeah. for them to perpetrate such an evil plot over so many hundreds of years. And nothing ever goes wrong. It's just Right. Yeah. Like like if they're if they're that disciplined, I mean, what did they do counsel training with Gigi Coyle? Did they do nonviolent communication training with Marshall Rosenberg? Like how is it that they're able to get yeah. along much better than people, you know? Yeah, especially like, if they're like power hungry narcissists already, what they're right. not trying to like fuck each other over in this. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's 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 one thing. And and also just the um the idea that um that the world is that controllable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no and, chaos. And that therefore, if something bad happens, that there's somebody to blame. That's that's kind of the mindset of um, modern medicine's approach to pathology, to germ theory. It's, it's like if you're sick, there must be something making you sick. So let's find that and control it, um, preferably a bacteria which we know how to kill or maybe a virus that we can suppress or some body process that's gone awry and we can control that pharmaceutically or surgically. So that's that's what we're comfortable with. And that's part of the tilt of civilization. We're comfortable with a problem that uh, um, presents us with an enemy. So the mindset of a conspiracy theory is kind of the same. It's like, here's the bad guy. Here's the the explanation. Here's the thing that we can fight against, win over, dominate, suppress, etc., in order to heal the situation. And I think that sometimes in life that is the, a productive way to look at things. But we tend to <clears throat> overextend, uh, overapply that way of dealing with a problem and just apply it to everything so that improving agriculture becomes a matter of finding better ways to kill weeds and kill insects. Um, uh, improving America's security means finding better ways to exert full spectrum dominance and kill anybody who is going to try to attack us. Um, protecting the body means it's not just in conventional medicine. I mean, it's like there's, you know, oh, it's all about parasites. You know, it's all like find the one thing to attack. And in politics, too, like, oh, who's the bad guy here that is causing the problem? Maybe it's Vladimir Putin, you know, and if we just hear there, finally, now I understand why American democracy is decaying. Here's the bad guy like that. That whole mindset, I think, is part of the pattern that blinds us to the more complex matrix of causes, even a viral infection like this, we could ask what makes someone susceptible to the virus? What are the conditions? Uh, why are so many people so immune compromised and sick already? I mean, most people who die from coronavirus have, were already very sick. And so we can go into terrain theory, which 
which um, sees germs like bacteria and viruses, pathogenic bacteria and viruses as symptoms of the breeding ground for them, symptoms of an unhealthy body ecology, perhaps, or an unhealthy emotional ecology, or, you know, a body that's been harmed by 5G radiation or something like that. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily discount completely the role of a virus, but it takes in a much bigger picture. And it allows us to address situations that are not actually caused by a bad guy or where the bad guy is just a symptom like terrorism, you know, is the problem that some people all of a sudden out of the blue decided to become terrorists. If so, because they're because why? Because they're bad. And if that's true, then the solution is indeed to, you know, kill them or imprison them or something like that. But if we broaden our view and say, well, what are the breeding grounds for terrorists? What situation do they in, in what situation can they gain traction? Then we are um, we have access to responses that aren't just about killing somebody. Same thing with with health. And this is one thing that troubled me and with the covid epidemic is like. Like there's reams of research about everything from elderberry elderberry extract to medicinal mushrooms to um, um, NAC, you know, like these 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 supplements and things that are documented to to um, substantially boost the immune system against flu-like illnesses, you know, against respiratory. Not a word is 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 the CDC like telling everybody to 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 do these and trying to make them available to everybody? No, I mean it's like totally off the radar. And I want, and I, I see this as part of the initiation, possibly, like that instead of giving us a new enemy, it could give us pause to expand the scope of our vision and and entertain responses other than just fighting and controlling and dominating and insulating and distancing and separating. No. Yeah, it's an opportunity to have our illusory beliefs crumble, which is something that we need <laughs> at this mm -hmm. time. Um, can we talk a little bit more about our civilization's established institutions being increasingly helpless to meet the challenges of our time? So all the bigger challenges beyond coronavirus right now and how they welcome this challenge that they can finally meet. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that anybody is like actually happy that coronavirus is happening, you know, but there is a comfort level with um, a, a, with a crisis that does very much seem to be caused by a bad guy, <laughs> you know, not a human, but a, 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 a virus. Whereas conditions that are killing more people than coronavirus will, I would hazard to guess. I mentioned in the essay, um, hunger. Five million children a year dying of malnutrition. And these are children, whereas coronavirus is killing mostly, not all. I mean, this is important to realize, like it's a real thing, but mostly killing people in their 70s and 80s. 
but 5 million, which is what, 50 times more than coronavirus has killed so far, um, every year dying from malnutrition, 5 million children. But we don't really know what to do about that. There's nothing, you can't fight hunger. Like you can't, because it's created by an entire system, an entire money system, an entire economic system, an entire agricultural system, the displacement of people from land. Um, the, I mean, there's just so many factors playing into it that intimately involve ourselves in the affluent countries that you can't like set. It's not like, you know, there's um, this army of evil warlords that's going around taking food from people and that's why they're starving. And if we just killed the warlords then they would have enough food, so it's not a problem like that. Uh, so we don't really know what to do. And so we kind of just, you know, keep going as if it weren't happening. Same thing with, I mentioned other things in the essay, like, like autoimmunity, which is an, an, an epidemic that's affecting, uh, you know, tens of millions of people in the United States. Uh, addiction, opioid addiction, another addiction, um, depression. I don't know how many people are clinically depressed, but it's like more than 10% of the population. Uh, suicide, which has been going up, you know, by double digits every decade. Uh, we don't know what to do about these things because there's no, there's no perpetrator that can be easily identified that's separate from ourselves. So we don't do anything. No one's saying, oh my God, 5 million children a year. We have to change everything because this is unacceptable. We don't change anything for that. Yet we're changing everything, like like tremendous mobilization and uh, uh, from government on down to individuals uh, in response to coronavirus. And my hope is that maybe we'll, after it is over, if it is ever over, we'll say, wow, if we could change that much for this crisis, maybe these other unsolvable crises that are actually intolerable and that we're actually maybe becoming more aware of as the empathy spreads along with the fear, maybe these are solvable too. Maybe we can make gigantic changes and choose a better world. That's my, my hope that then that's what the coronation is. You know, that's what the initiation is. It's into greater power and sovereignty instead of helplessness, instead of being ruled over by circumstances that we take as un unalterable, to come into the seat of sovereignty and say, when, human, when, we, when we forge common agreements and are united in common cause, we can do anything. So knowing that, what shall we do? Yeah, maybe the destabilizing and chaotic times we're living through will yeah just reset everything <laughs> will reset everything i mean do you find yourself you wrote in the beginning of the essay about you know humanity being a, at a crossroads right now and how you've been waiting for a long time as have so many of us for something like this to happen we've known we've known we were on an unsustainable path and something big was going to come along and, um, you know, a lot of people weren't thinking it would be a viral pandemic, but a lot of people were and almost wanting it, 
Like we, we need something to shake up if right. we're going to change in time. Do you think this is it? I think it's one of many. I think we're uh, undergoing an, an initiatory ordeal. And it's, it is definitely a new phase of this rite of passage that we may or may not come through successfully. But we're going to we're going to see a lot of repercussions from this, you know, that might be worse than the suffering caused directly by the virus. Mm -hmm. um, the economic repercussions, for example, the dislocation, uh, the food shortages, perhaps. I was just reading an article today about um, the disruptions in the food supply that are, you know, we haven't really felt the effects yet. Um, but, you know, who knows? What's yeah. going to happen? Yeah. Um, financial collapse. Um, what, what's, you know, are all of the small businesses that are suspended, whose operations are suspended right now, how many of them are actually going to be able to recover? How many of the yoga studios, you know, and um, cafes and, uh, you know, all the small businesses where people gather? This new normal of you never are with other people. People are saying, well, that can only be temporary, but we've been going in this direction for a long time. Maybe this is just an accelerant toward a destination that we've, that we've always been going toward. And maybe people will, you know, like, do you actually ever need to interact with anybody in the flesh? We're getting along fine right now without it. Things get delivered to your house. Like, couldn't we just have a robotified distribution system, you know, where where you never actually have to be with anybody, where you have all of your interactions like we're having now over the Internet? Why do we ever have to go back to that, to a world of hugs and gatherings and play in in community together? Maybe we maybe we have to consciously choose to go back to that. And that means then the next question is, because that's what I want. I don't want to live to minimize risk of infectious disease and have the hug and the handshake be something that's only in the history books. I want to, you know, I'm willing to endure a little higher risk to do a lot of things in my life. I don't want to put others at risk. So this involves a social conversation about values. But if we are going to choose a different path in the direction we've been going, where is that new choice going to come from? What conditions, what psychic conditions, what ideological conditions have to change for us to reverse this course of separation and take a new turn, reverse this course of control, the civilizational reflex of control, of domination. It's all part of the same mentality. What's it going to take for us to take a different path? What is, what, what is that choice? What, what, to, to value something besides prolonging life and minimizing risk 
and instead to to pursue values like like exploration discovery play challenging of limits um uh pushing boundaries like those kinds of values the things that that send people off on adventures you know that that make people attracted to challenges the the child wandering a little bit past where where he's where he's where he's wandering into new territory like that growth process that's something that you can value instead of um minimizing risk so this is really asking us who do we want to be what is important to us and i think that at bottom as long as we are confined within the story of separation that tells us that we are a separate individual in a world of other in an objective universe that that is outside of ourselves fundamentally outside of ourselves that there isn't this mysterious intimate relationship between self and other between inner and outer between belief and reality as long as we live in that story of the separate self then of course the preservation of that self because that's all there is this is all i am from that story our entire system of control and the trajectory <clears throat> and the trajectory toward distance isolation separation lockdown that will be inevitable all that will be inevitable as long as we are fundamentally primarily operating from the story of separation therefore if we want to choose differently we need to be carriers of a different story and that might mean you know actually articulating a different story of interconnection interbeing ecology relational being but more than that more important than that it means to be to be um vessels to be carriers of experiences that violate the story of separation and offer an alternative that for example to be an agent of the story of we're in this together um the story of people are generous like you can propagate that story by being generous by being kind by being empathic by taking care of others by exemplifying not just looking out for yourself to make sure that you're going to be okay even if everybody else isn't that's called hoarding let me make sure that I'm okay and who cares about everybody else like we're this this coronavirus is facing us with those choices like really in really practical ways what do we radiate out into the world what we radiate out in these moments becomes the the default it it is it becomes a suggestion to others about what a human being is and how to live which means that we're living in a very potent moment yeah um this civil civilizational bent toward control that you talk about is all in the name of with the goal of keeping us perpetually safe which is ridiculous because we're all going to die right the ultimate 
goal of trying to stay perpetually safe is is to never die, to keep that separate self intact indefinitely. And I really was grateful that you that you talked about death in the essay because here's this looming thing. You know, here's the worst case outcome of this virus. And it's something that terrifies most humans, at least at times. And especially, I think, you know, here in America, we we deny death. We don't want to look at death. We don't want to talk about death. Um, you're right. In the world of the separate self, death is the ultimate catastrophe. Um, it seems like we can look at this as a, a, a lesson in death acceptance and learning to die well collectively and looking at, you know, if we get through this and we go back to business as usual, you know, do you share this fear that perhaps this ends and it'll be like after World War II when everyone's like, woohoo, and, you know, the boom generation takes off and maybe we'll like rebound even harder to our old ways after this because people are so celebratory and happy that they can live again in the way they were used to. Anyway, I'm just thinking of this as like a collective lesson in um, in dying well. Yeah. Um, our, our civilization is driven by a, a fundamental delusion that, I mean, even when we, even the words saving lives, what that actually means is prolonging, is, is postponing death. Uh, you know, everyone's going to die. And that is as you quoted there you know it's the, it's death is the ultimate catastrophe for the separate self it's almost too bad to think about which is why our society does its best not to think about it to hide it away and to deny it when the fact of death is fully incorporated into one's consciousness then a lot of the behaviors that define our civilization no longer make sense if you know you're going to die, then what's the purpose of life? You're like, you're not, you can't survive life. So what else becomes important then? Maybe your contribution. Maybe it's what outlives you that becomes more important. Maybe, and, and the more that we realize that our beingness is not confined to these skin encapsulated egos, as Alan Watts put it, but that our that that who we are is is a holographic mirror of everybody else and everything else, then like we don't know <laughs> what I mean I don't I don't know what my experience my subjective experience will be after I die. My upbringing taught me it will be nothing. The candle flame goes out, gone. But um most human beings who have ever lived on Earth did not believe that. Is it that modern science has enabled us to transcend such primitive superstitions and now we know? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, I just have met too many people who have had near-death experiences and, and, you know, there's all the reincarnation research and, I mean, who knows? I don't know. But... I do know that the story of the separate self being annihilated at death is a story. And maybe it carries truth. I don't know to what degree. 
anyway, um, one thing that I, I do know <clears throat> is that the more, and I'm not saying like, you know, forget about safety and be reckless, but I'm saying <clears throat> that the more I am governed by security, <clears throat> let me say it again, the more, the more I am governed by security, the more anemic my life becomes, like the less alive I am when I'm just trying to stay safe. I mean, to take it to an extreme, like let's just stay indoors all the time. But risk minimization is no way to live. It, it, so it's ironic that that aversion to death, fear of death, it's actually fear of life. It's actually an aversion to life, to being fully alive, because it puts survival, security, comfort, etc., over so many other experiences that are only available when we step into the unknown. I mean, that's almost a tautology. You're not going to have a new experience if you don't step into the unknown. And the unknown is fundamentally risky. And I'm seeing over my lifetime this mania for safety just taking over everything to the point where as I mentioned at the beginning, like kids are not playing outside anymore. And this did not just start with coronavirus. This has been progressively happening over my entire lifetime, uh, even starting before my lifetime. Like even when I was a kid, you know, people were starting to stay inside and watch cartoons. When my father was a kid, there wasn't TV. They were outside all the freaking time playing marbles, playing hopscotch, playing cops and robbers, like their child, a child's life was one huge collective game with all the other kids. And there was still some of that when I was a kid. Very little of it now. In fact, the things that I did when I was a kid, if, if I let my kids do those, CPS could come to my house and take the kids away. Like you let them unsupervised, you know, like you bad parent. Yeah, actually, it is more dangerous to let them outside, be unsupervised, let them encounter the dangers of the world and thereby develop their judgment and their confidence that they can take care of themselves instead of always staying under the protective, safe wing of the parent. It is riskier. But is it the most important thing that they simply make it to their deathbed? I mean, it's going to happen anyway. You know, it's just, it's just tremendous delusion. And, you know, this is coming up so clearly when people face the choice, say, do I go on a respirator or do I, you know, in an ICU and be essentially tortured with a machine breathing for me that I can't unhook myself from until I die? Or do I die three weeks sooner? with my loved ones around me instead of, as Lisa Rankin puts it, instead of, you know, saying goodbye to your loved ones on FaceTime, if at all. This is the kind of thing we need to be talking about now as death is put in our face. Yeah. It's what, it, what it says is how do we want to live and how do we want to die? And any response to COVID that doesn't go into those questions is a recipe for more of the same. 
You know, let's, let's take this opportunity and go deep. Who do we want to be? How do we want to live? Yeah, the one question that sits with me often that I don't think I've ever shared about before, because I know how painful it is for other people to hear it and think of this too, is, and in light of everything happening in the world, climate change and everything else, long before COVID is, how do I want my children to die? Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of world and society are we creating for that? Yeah. It's been so painful to watch my my youngest son do his best without playmates for weeks and weeks now. So by himself. Yeah. Like, since when has that happened in the history of humanity? It's not it's not natural. It's it's you know, I do my best. I played with him, that's how I got that tick, you know, that was crawling on my computer. I was playing with him outside, we were rolling around, you know. Yeah, I, I just, you know, sometimes I feel pretty hopeless about the direction that things are going. But I recognize that the hopelessness, too, is based on a story of separation that names our choices as futile says you can't do anything about it because you're just a separate self. But when we understand that there is this intimate, mysterious connection between self and cosmos, then no longer do we think that our that we are powerless and that our decisions don't matter. The small ones, the invisible ones. And that knowing is lodged in all of our hearts. Like we all have moments that feel so important and so significant, even though the mind says, oh, but you know, what does it matter when the sun is going to go red giant in 5 billion years anyway? <laughs> or, you know, just to take an extreme example, um, what does it matter in the face of climate change? What does it matter in the face of whatever global crisis is happening? The mind can't understand what the heart knows that we are powerful beings and that every act has cosmic significance. The heart knows that and can feel it in certain situations where you know that a lot is riding on this choice. It feels sacred, that moment. So we all know this, that we're not powerless. And maybe as the conditioning circumstances of our culture are temporarily on pause some of them some of them are in overdrive actually but some of them are on pause maybe we can recover some of this primordial knowing of our own power amen so as we hopefully are moving further out of the story of separation that has dominated for centuries now and into the story of interbeing, I was struck by this idea in relation to coronavirus and to health in general and whatever 
other viral pandemics might come our way, that the deterioration in immunity caused by excessive hygiene and social distancing is something to think about. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony is that all of our efforts to control and and to be healthier through isolation and through, you know, distancing and domination and insulation and like all of that, it won't even achieve that goal. Maybe in the short term, you know, fewer people will die and we'll be safer. But in the long term, as like a general practice, um, excessive, I mean, there was an article about this. I think I might've cited it in the, in the essay about is hygiene making us sick when you're, you're not getting your, your, um, influx of bacteria and microorganisms into your body through touching your face, you know, through having your hands dirty, through being with other people, um, through like traditionally eating fermented foods and things like that. Like we're not like interacting with the wild world and we're instead separating ourselves. Then we're like a potted plant. How healthy is a potted plant? If you give it just a little too much water or not quite enough water or then like the mites come and attack it or whatever, like potted plants are fragile compared to a dandelion in a field, which is almost unkillable. Like that's real health comes from community. Same with mental health. It is like like the biggest predictor of this is another statistic that I read on on Lisa Rankin's blog the, that that loneliness is a bigger predictor of death than smoking, drinking, um, you know anything else. Like so it may seem like we are protecting ourselves with social distancing. And I can, I can understand the arguments for, for doing it in the short term, you know, to flatten the curve and so forth. Um, but like so much else, it is an illusion that we can be, that we can thrive in isolation because it is an illusion that we are really separate from the world. Yeah, back to the hoarding example, you know, um, when the wildfires really started hitting close to home here in Northern California in 2017, we kind of started looking at prepping and like, okay, what are all these crazy preppers talking about, you know, and for a good six months, we were diving into that world and getting more and more (laughs) anxious and, um, you know, starting to like, you know, have some supplies on hand, but realizing We're not going to survive any sort of post-apocalyptic world on our own. You know, the four of us here in this house, it's never going to happen. It it has to be in community that we survive anything that's going to be thrown our way. Right. So there is a kind of prepping for that, which is that you prepare to be of good use to the community. Mm -hmm. You prepare to take care of other people. You know, I think there's, you know, nothing wrong with keeping a couple of weeks supplies on hand yeah um you know that that might in case there's somebody with none like they could share yeah Um, but yeah the idea of like the bunker mentality that's not going to really work unless you want to keep a lot of guns because if you're in your bunker with your you know supplies and people don't have any out there they're going to come and take them 
And the only way that they're not going to take them is if they're your friends and you're taking care of each other. And then that so it takes us back to community. That's the only insurance policy. Right. This is the same principle that that it may seem that hoarding and controlling and keeping for yourself is the path to wealth. And we have a system that that seems to verify that, but it's temporary. We could face financial collapse. We could face hyperinflation. We could face seizure of assets. And then your investment portfolio will be worthless. What will be that will not be wealth anymore. What will be wealth is your relationships. So if you've been generous, you know, for your whole life, that is a bank account that that uh, cannot be extinguished through hyperinflation or seizure of assets or anything like that, financial collapse. It's a it's actually much more secure to embrace our interbeingness and step into the world of taking care of each other, stepping into community. That's the best insurance policy. Yeah, I'm gonna add to that tending our relationships with other humans and tending our relationships with the earth outside our door and the plants and the soil. And, you know, growing food for ourselves, yes, but growing food for others who might be in need and, you know, just extending that idea beyond the human realm. Mm-hmm. Um, just going to tie it back into to the tick and this proliferation of disease carrying ticks, proliferation of novel and rapidly mutating viruses this is all coming out of the matrix of ecological instability on the planet. And there's, we don't know what's next. You know, we're just living in such this moment of not knowing, but such a moment, as you said, of potential change. And I really am heartened by this idea that you wrote about in the essay that phenomenally rapid change is possible. And we're seeing that, right, with the um, super reduced pollution levels in China. And it just is a really hopeful, I'm holding that in my heart and I'm living, I'm living that story. Yeah, we are seeing phenomenal change in a very short amount of time. And that was what I was saying before. Can we apply that power to, to these other crises that are facing the planet? Um, yeah, the, the ecological crisis, the ticks, you know, like why are there so many ticks all of a sudden? When I was a kid, you could lie down in the meadow and you wouldn't get a single tick. Like now, if you do that, you're crawling with them. Why? I don't think that this is, you know, this is another situation where you can't necessarily identify a bad guy to explain it, but it could be because of uh, the um, overgrowth of deer populations that strip the understory that would otherwise provide habitat for for birds, ground birds that would eat the ticks. Or it could be because of um, neonicotinoid pesticides that are, are destroying insect and bird populations. Or it could be because of the extinguishing of apex predators in the eastern forests that have these cascading ripple effects 
throughout the entire ecosystem. Or it could be because of changing weather patterns that are caused by by greenhouse gases and deforestation. I mean, I'm, you know, I think we talked about this before. I'm, I'm um, I think that the conventional climate narrative obscures a lot of the um, other causes of of uh, climate and ecological disruption. But you know, who knows what's causing this? But it is a symptom of disruption. Like if one thing explodes into overgrowth. That means that there's a disruption happening. Just like if you disrupt the soil and plow up the soil, you have an explosion of weeds. And they're there for a reason. So so the, this when when ecosystems get simplified, then they respond with with a proliferation of certain species that are actually trying to bring it back into equilibrium. And it's interesting to me and a sign of some deeper intelligence that a lot of times the the species that explodes is something noxious to humans jellyfish ticks this like uh, toxic seaweed in australia um uh i had there's more more examples that i could think of but um poison ivy <laughs> that's like rampant like when i was a kid you rarely saw i mean there was poison ivy but now there's like whole forests are overgrown with it mm. so it's kind of you know and maybe it's nature saying we need to take a little break here keep out um but really the invitation is to step in this is you know the same pattern like to step into service to life that's the invitation that that coronavirus is giving us as well to step into we need each other to step into we take care of each other to step into solidarity this is a part and that's why i say that this is just one of a number of uh, initiatory crises that we're going to face each one of them giving us a different flavor of the same invitation which is to step into care for the other Okay, thank you, Charles. Um, people can find and read the essay, The Coronation, at charleseisenstein.org. And you have promised to continue writing about what's going on. Yeah. Oh, you know, sometimes I'm just like reluctant to add to the pile of words out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, the situation is changing so much that I think I'll probably be called to write on it again. Yeah. Well, yeah. your pile of words is really a, a light in a confusing darkness. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for saying that, Amber. Yeah. Kind of you. It's true. Okay. As promised, here are these two pieces of writing followed by a recommendation for my favorite podcast to come out of all of this, except for the one that you just listened to, of course. Okay, so Stephen Buner, who was my guest on episode eight of this podcast, posted the following words on Facebook, I don't know, last week sometime, early April. I'm skipping the first paragraph in which he's writing about how people keep emailing him um, various conspiracy theories, especially about the coronavirus being bioengineered by humans to kill massive amounts of people. 
I have been teaching about microbial organisms for 30 years, writing about them for 20, and going really complex for 10. The belief that these are engineered bioweapons comes from a number of psychological roots. I understand them and why they get activated. It is true that the powerful keep most of us out of the loop, initiate actions that affect all of us negatively from time to time, while denying responsibility, and don't really care all that much for the common people. What else is new? This has always been true. That plays a part in the belief that organisms are being bioengineered, but I think the stronger influence is simply our unwarranted belief that life is supposed to be safe, it isn't, and the natural world is some sort of Disney or Parkland background to our lives, it isn't. The truth is that microbial organisms are tightly interwoven into the ecological fabric of this planet, and on this planet there is no escape from global ecology. Very few people understand what the ecological underpinnings of life are or how far astray the human species has gone from any kind of sustainable habitation of this planet. This virus and a great many other things are trying to explain our error to us. They will get more insistent as time goes on. Our technology, which comes out of the discoveries of a science that believes that dissection of the world is a legitimate approach— and our increasing population, which has come from a medical system that takes credit for the good things it does and ignores the ecological ramifications of its actions, has put unsustainable pressure on the ecological systems of the planet. Under that pressure, the ecological systems of the planet are beginning to fail. One of the effects of that is the emergence into the human population of pandemic diseases. I and others who are knowledgeable in this area have been warning about this for 30 years. We are not immune from the ecological impacts of our species' actions. We are ecological beings on an ecological planet, and our belief in American exceptionalism is unfounded. Microbes are some 4 billion years old. Despite what most of us have been taught, and what most doctors and some scientists still believe, they are highly intelligent, are sophisticated tool users and innovators, possess language, culture, and are a great deal more sophisticated at what they are doing than we are and for sure our medical systems, which are for the most part based on inaccurate assumptions about the nature of disease and microbial pathogens and have little to no understanding of ecology. In the 1950s, we started a pharmaceutical war with intelligent life forms far older than our own and who have survived challenges far greater than our current ecological mess. These organisms are arising from their ecological background and entering our species simply because there are too many of us, and we have disturbed the ecological balance of the planet. To them, we are no different than a deer or a bird. We are, in fact, prey. We always have been. It is just that we have come to believe that we are not, and by virtue of our intelligence, should not be. The great teaching of our time, despite the pain we are experiencing now, each of us will, as I have already, lose people we love is that the way we are going about things must change. It is no longer possible to continue as we have been. Each ecological response after this one is almost certainly going to be more extreme than the last if we continue this way. In a sense, I guess you could say that this virus is bioengineered, but it has been bioengineered by the ecological fabric of the planet, not people. The lesson here is that there are limits to our behavior that cannot be exceeded without consequences. It is a hard lesson, but one we desperately need to learn. Our children deserve the effort it will take for us to learn this, as do their children, as do all our kindred life forms on this planet, and their children. In the spirit of the plants, Stephen Herod Buner. 
The second piece is something that a friend texted me right before I sat down to record this outro to record Stephen's words. And uh, I love it. I love it. I had actually just put up an Instagram post saying something very similar, but the way she said it is much more beautiful and poetic. So this was written by someone named Katie Lamont. I don't know her. I have not seen where she originally posted it. I'll try to find that before this comes out so I can link to it in the show notes. I'll link to Buner's piece too. But what she wrote was, if you believe this virus is spread human to human, the antidote is building the immune system with eating plants and natural medicines and sitting in nature alone or with your immediate family, soaking up vitamin D and sunshine, which is going to be the the subject of the next podcast, by the way. If you believe that this virus is symptoms of 5G exposure, then the antidote is sitting in nature, connecting to Mother Nature, building your immunity with eating plants and natural medicines, submerging yourself in water and dirt. If you believe that this is all a hoax and you just need to sit back while Q saves us all, then the answer is sitting in nature, building a garden for the new earth, communing with your divine source, eating plants and natural medicines that strengthen your connection and open your channel to the new earth frequency. Ascend with her. If you believe the economy is collapsing and authoritarian dictatorship is imminent, the most radical thing you can do in protest is build a garden, releasing dependency on the system. If you believe that Mother Earth is mad at us and purging the human race, the answer is to go outside and listen, build a garden, align with her. The answer is always nature. Always. We do not have to argue about the why. The antidote is obvious. Alignment with Mother Nature, with our source of nurturance. Remembering everything we use and need comes from her. Give thanks. Humble. Slow down. Observe. Listen. And finally, um, the podcast episode that has just been blowing my mind and nurturing my heart through all this is, you won't be surprised to hear me say an interview with Dr. Zach Bush. And it was on the Rich Roll podcast. I believe this is his third appearance on that one, but this one is titled A Pandemic of Possibility. And I just appreciate everything they talk about in there, but especially the end when Dr. Bush has a specific message for people in the front lines, on the front lines in the hospitals and healthcare workers that's specifically looking at death and dying well and helping others to die well and embracing the teaching of that and the teaching of this time. Um, I'm positive if you're still listening to this, then you've enjoyed the words you've heard so far and you will take to heart Rich and Zach's words on that episode as well. I'll put it in the show notes, as well as the link to Charles's essay, The Coronation, so you can really dive deeper into everything that we talked about during the interview. Thanks for listening. I love you guys, and I hope you're well. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. 
We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more. More than I can list there. Mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, and behind-the-scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.